Well, before we jump into our specific text for today, I want us to talk just a little bit about the book of Revelation and how to read it. Um, John Calvin, one of the great theological minds, one of the great expositors of the Bible, didn't write a commentary on Revelation. He wrote a commentary on almost every other book of the Bible, but he got to Revelation and he was like, I'm not going to touch that. Um, you know, he, he wrote about predestination and God's sovereignty and the depravity of man. Like that was a piece of cake for him. But then he got to Revelation. He was like, I'm out. I'm not doing it. Um, and so we're going to do it. And, uh, and maybe that is silly of us. Maybe that's foolish. Um, but as I was studying to prepare for this series, I really started to fall in love with this book. And in fact, I wish we were going to be spending a lot more time on it. We're just going to be spending five weeks probably looking at the first four or five chapters of the book. But because we're going to start it, I, I figure it's a new year. Many of you maybe decide to study it kind of long term. Maybe in your connect groups you want to study it. We've got some resources um, in the resource center that you can use. Um, and so because some of you might continue studying Revelation beyond what we're going to cover, I, I thought it'd be good to at least talk through just a general framework with how to approach Revelation. Simply put, Revelation says God wins. That's it. I mean, the whole message of the book of Revelation is that God is in control of history and God wins. And really, as you read it and as you, as you read some of those crazy visions, as you get some of those images uh, that are presented in the book, what you are seeing is really a display, a, a visualization of reality. Of, of all that we cannot see, where we're getting a picture of the reality of spiritual warfare. And that history involves a spiritual battle. So as you read Revelation, it's important that, that as you're reading it, you see it as a picture book, not as a puzzle. You're not trying to like decode it or, or find some secret message in it. It's not meant to be read that way. It's meant to give you a picture, a picture of what's really going on. Like it says in Ephesians 4.12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. But it's against the powers, it's against the authorities, it's against the, the evil in this present darkness. We spent all of Advent looking at the angels, the angels that showed up around the birth of Jesus. And really in Revelation, we're seeing a continuation, a continuation of, of looking at what the spiritual realm really looks like. Revelation is a book that gives us a heavenly perspective of our earthly circumstances. And again... The book says God wins. The book is not intended to be some kind of scary book that's turned into an even scarier movie starring Nicolas Cage. Um, it, was, it was never meant to be that. In fact, as you heard me read, at the very beginning of the book, Jesus appears to John and he says, I want you to write a letter to these seven churches. So the book is a letter. The whole book's a letter that was sent to these churches full of people, full of Christians who were being persecuted who were being tortured and killed, sometimes in the most heinous of ways. So Revelation, as you're reading it, you have to remember, this isn't some crazy book that I have to figure out. No, it's a letter written to Christians who are suffering to bring them hope. At the time of the writing, the Christians had been suffering under an emperor named Nero, and he was, he was, a, he was just a mean man. He used to throw these garden parties at his palace in which he would take Christians and he would impale them on sticks alive, cover them in pitch, and then light them on fire and use them as their candles. 
And then shortly after Nero, there would come another emperor named Domitian. And Domitian was worse than Nero. In fact, um, I'm trying to keep it safe for the little ears, so I'm not going to tell you what he would do, but you can Google it, and, uh, and it'll keep you up at night. And in fact, the most merciful that Domitian ever was towards Christians was to throw them to the lions to be eaten. That was the most merciful act. So there was something in the book of Revelation that helped these persecuted Christians not only face their deaths bravely, but oftentimes singing praises to God. So as you read Revelation, keep that in mind. That is the original audience. This book was intended to bring hope to those who are facing death. And in fact, this is a historical fact. The reason Christianity spread so fast in those first few centuries after Jesus' death and resurrection is because the church was getting killed. One early church father said, the blood of martyrs is seed, which means the more they killed the church, the more the church grew. Because as the church was being killed, the Romans and others were watching these Christians face death with fortitude and with, with a kind of peace that passed understanding and sometimes even with joy on their faces. And they were desperate to find out what it is these Christians had that they didn't. Well, they had revelation. Oh, how we have cheapened its message when we think of it as the basis of the Left Behind series. Now, I know we got to get to the actual text, but I, I, I want to geek out just a little bit longer on this, okay? I want to discuss a few other things. Um, well, we're going to look at the first four or five chapters of the book, but the crazy stuff starts happening in the sixth chapter, and it goes to about the 18th chapter. And in the sixth through the 18th chapter, you've got all those crazy visions, and there's a couple different ways that people have interpreted the fulfillment of those visions that are presented in those chapters. So I just want to kind of give you a little history, theological um, lesson. And so these are the different ways that people, theologians and, and, and Bible scholars, have interpreted Revelation 6 through 18. There's, there's four different ways here. Um, you have some people who are called preterist. And these people believe that everything that is that is talked about in Revelation from 6, Revelation 6 to Revelation 18, all happened before the end of the Roman Empire. So they believe the book was written in about 67 AD, and then, um, and then the fall of Jerusalem happened in 70 AD, and so everything you're reading in Revelation is actually taking place then. So it's all done, besides the, the kind of final chapters of Revelation when Jesus returns. But essentially they think that what we're reading when we read Revelation, it's a history book. It's kind of history of what happened to the early church right after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then you've got futurists. Futurists believe that the fulfillment of everything in Revelation will take place during some final crisis. So at some point, um, some final crisis will ignite, and, and then that will happen, and then Jesus will come back again. And again, this is where the Left Behind series, they kind of come out of that branch, but they've they've gone crazy with it, and it's just not true. I'm sorry, if you love those books, they're rubbish. Um, all right, so you got futurists, um, and then you've got historicists. And historicists believe that Revelation 6 through 18 is an outline of church history from the time of Christ until his second coming. Now, this was really popular for many centuries, but for the last couple hundred years, not many people have, a, have, have bought into this because it just hadn't turned out to be that way. As we've looked at church history, you can't actually follow Revelation chronologically. And then lastly, they're idealist. An idealist 
believe that the scenes, the images, the pictures you see in Revelation depict principles of spiritual warfare, not specific events. And these principles can be seen playing out throughout the age of the church repeatedly. So you kind of see the same things happening over and over again. Again, this is kind of where I lean, because I do believe as you read Revelation, it is giving you eyes to see what is spiritually happening in our world. So that's, that's, that's one thing uh, that you need to know as you're studying and reading Revelation. The other concerns the thousand-year reign that's talked about in Revelation 20. And there's really three ma- major views on this. The first is premillennialist, and they believe... Um, that the conditions here on earth will continue to get worse and worse and worse until finally there's some kind of cataclysmic event and then Jesus returns and he sets up his reign for a thousand years. That's premillennialist. Then you got postmillennialists and they believe that the world's actually getting better. And in fact, the thousand year reign, the, the return of Christ is dependent on, on the world getting better. It's dependent on the church doing what the church is called to do, to evangelize every tribe, tongue, and nation, and to, to bring about social reform. Now, this was a belief that was held by Jonathan Edwards, one of the great preachers uh, of the Great Awakening back in the 17th century. And he really, he believed that the thousand-year reign was going to start in the year 2000. Because he reckoned that it would take about 250 years, he was living in, in about 1750, 250 years for everybody to be evangelized and for the world to start improving. And so at 2000, in the year 2000, he believed that the thousand-year reign would last. Um, but, but he was a post-millennialist, and people still, that's still a very common, um, and, and it can be held, it's a, it's a good view, that, that things will get better, and as we continue to do the mission of the church, eventually we will usher in Christ's return. And then the last one are all millennialists. And they believe that the thousand-year reign is more of a metaphorical um, number. That, that, it, that it indicates from the time Jesus came, and, and he came and he said the kingdom of God is here until his second coming. Um, and again, that's kind of more where I fall. But so as you read Revelation... I think it's important to kind of know all these different views and to not get on kind of all these side trails getting into crazy land. Because revelation is meant to bring you hope, especially in your suffering, because that's what it was meant for the original people who would have read Revelation. So what does all that have to do with the passage that we read today? Not a whole lot. Um, But I think it's important that we kind of have this framework as we jump into this book. And I know some of you, uh, I'm looking at your faces, and I think some of you are with me, and you thought, that was cool. I like going down that rabbit trail. Uh, and others of you are just like, hey, man, I just, I just need to know God loves me, and actually I need to know what I need to do in 2016 for it to be a better year, or I need some hope because I'm suffering and my circumstances are bad, and why did you just do all that? Um, I'm sorry, but now I'm going to talk to you, okay? So God loves you. And in fact, what we just read at the beginning of Revelation tells us exactly what it is we need in order to get better. What it is we need in order to find hope, no matter what our circumstances turn out to be this year. Let's go back and read verses 17 and 18 again. Verses 17 and 18. This is John. He says, When I saw him, when he saw Jesus, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. 
I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus says, I am the first and the last. At the end of Revelation, he repeats himself, and he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, which Alpha was the first letter in the Greek alphabet, and the Omega was the last letter. So the story of the Bible, the story of God, concludes with Jesus saying to anyone who would pick it up, to anyone who would dare just kind of read it, that he's your beginning and he's your end. That if you find him, you really can face anything. You really can get better. You can know that you are loved unconditionally. You can finally experience peace. You can know what it is to be free. How? Because he's the first and the last. So let's, let's start with what it means that Jesus is the first, that he's the beginning of our story. When Jesus says, I'm the first, he's claiming to be God. He's claiming to be the creator. Like it says in John's gospel at the very beginning, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and, and he was with God and, and everything was created through him. And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us and the word was Jesus. So he's the one out of whom everyone came. He thought you up. He created you. So what does that mean? How should that affect you? How should that affect you as you go into a new year? Well, it means you have to start with him. To understand your story, to understand your purpose, to understand yourself, you have to start with him. Now, I know some of you have really been struggling with who you are. Some of you maybe have just gone through a bad breakup and you're thinking, what did I do wrong? What's wrong with me? Will I ever feel loved and wanted again? Some of you have been out of work, or, or maybe you're in a job that you hate. Or maybe you just look around and it feels like everyone else is doing something that matters or, or, or doing something that they were designed for and you're just getting by. Or maybe life's just been really hard, and, and maybe the holidays have been really hard for you, and you're just like, I don't, I just need some help. I'm just really frustrated right now. You have to start with knowing that you're not the alpha, that you're not the first. You have to start knowing that Jesus is the first. If you start with you and your circumstances and how you feel and what you want, if you start with you, you will never find you. You have to go outside of you to find yourself. In the story of God, and this is what we saw at the very beginning of the series when we, we started the series back in the fall, is in the beginning, God. And so before the beginning, there was God. And, and this God was a triune God. And he was a God that he was full of love. And out of love, he decided to create all of this. And so unless we start with that God, unless we start with him, we can't know who we are. We can't know ourselves. We have to get outside of ourselves in order to know ourselves. Kipling, uh, who wrote The Jungle Book, um, he once said, what do they know of England who only England know? He said, if you want to understand your country, if you want to understand your people and where you came from, you have to leave it. I once moved to the faraway land of L.A., and um, I, I never knew 
how amazing it is to be able to get in and out of a Target and get a Chick-fil-A sandwich whenever you wanted until I moved to L.A. Uh, it was, I mean, the, t the Target was 30 minutes away, and the parking lot was like this big, and, and so it was, a, it was awful. And the only Chick-fil-A was also um, 30 miles away, but it was on the 405, which meant it was two hours away. But Kelly and I would go about once a week to Chick-fil-A, and they, would, they thought we were crazy because we'd always buy like 10 sandwiches so that we could have them all week, and we would beg them for as many Polynesian sauces as they could have. But it wasn't until I moved away from here that I realized how much I loved it here. That I realized what it, what it was that my city, or what my city was. So as you think about this next year, how have you stepped outside of yourself in order to know who you are? Have you done that? Do you even know how to do that? Well, right here in Revelation 1, it tells you how to do it. You have to start with Jesus. You have to believe that before the beginning of the world, he had you in mind. That he has a purpose for you. That he is your beginning. That you're not just some kind of accidental allocation of atoms. Because if you believe that, if you believe that you're just a bunch of molecules that came together at some indefinite past period and you're a chemical action um, accident, then, then you have to start with you. You have to decide what it is that you think's your meaning. You have to give yourself a purpose. You have to give yourself rules. But if you were created by a personal God, then you have to discover what it is he had in mind when he thought you up. And the main way you do that is through his word. The main way is to read it. And now I, some of you might be here and you're just kind of trying to figure this out and you showed up and you're like, I just, I don't know what I believe. And, and, and so this isn't really for you because you should read the Bible and, and think about, you know, if you believe it and what you agree with and your doubt. I mean, you can examine God's word. You, you can put it on trial if you want. But if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've said, Jesus, I, I'm surrendered to you, we can't read the Bible that way. We don't read the Bible to decide what it is that we agree with and what we don't agree with. We, we read the Bible, actually we let the Bible read us. We hold it out and we say, all right, read me. Show me who I am because I know if it starts with me, I, I'm going to be lost. I know I'm going to be confused. I know I'm going to manipulate things. No, I need to start with you. I'm going to allow the word of God to be the starting place, the beginning, the first. And if you do that, things will begin to make sense. You will begin to find out who it is you are. You will find yourself. You'll discover what you were designed for. So Jesus is the first, but he's also the last. When Jesus, the word, spoke the universe into existence, he did it for himself. Again, as we looked at Genesis and we looked at the creation account, we saw that before the beginning, the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, existed in this mutual, self-sacrificing, loving relationship. And so when creation came about, it was, it was an overflow of that love. It wasn't just a display of power. And so if that's true, the universe, you and I, and the story that's being told is a display of his love. In love, you were built for him. 
you fit or you find your purpose as you're serving him because that's why he created you. Everything is oriented towards him. The Bible says all of human history is moving towards Christ. He is the, not only the first, but he's the last. He's the omega. All of history is going towards him. So he's not just the creator at the beginning, but he's also the judge at the end. He's where the story ends. That's it. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. That means every need, every single need you have will be answered in him someday if you orient yourself towards him. Every promise. All your needs point to him. All your problems will find resolve in him. All the suffering and evil will be put down by him. One of my New Year's resolutions, um, actually it's my only New Year's resolution because I'm not good at them, and I decided I wasn't going to do that to myself this year. Um, But my one New Year's resolution, um, and I hesitate saying it because you could hold me accountable to it, um, but it's to memorize Ephesians. Like that's what I, this year, 2016, I want to I I know it. I want to have it in my head so that I hope that it will get down into my heart and it'll just become the way I think and feel. And I, I'm about 10 verses in, and I started early. I started before Christmas, so I got a head start. Um, but as I've been reading and rereading and memorizing these first 10 verses of Ephesians, the one thing that keeps standing out to me is how many times it talks about in Christ. I mean, over and over again, Paul kind of writes this really long run-on sentence, and just everything is in Christ, and the blessings we have, and, and, and everything that, that he gives thanks and rejoicing in is because of Christ. And at this point in Paul's life, he's in prison, he's lost, um, he's lost almost everything, and yet he has so much joy because of Christ. In fact, I think he, he says in Christ 11 times in those first 10 verses. He says, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Everyone. Every spiritual blessing. Do you believe that? Do you believe because you have Christ, right now, you have everything you need? Do you believe that? That, That's why I want to memorize Ephesians, because that's hard to believe. And And I figure if I get it in here... Then, then maybe it'll work its way into my heart and I really will believe it because I think that's hard to believe that right now, everything I absolutely need, there is nothing I need, there is nothing that's being withheld from me that I need because I have him. One of the reasons I think this is so hard for us, or at least for me, um, is because we approach God in, in one of two ways. We can either make God or Jesus a means to an end or we can make him the end and everything else the means. A lot of times, um, if we live, uh, if, if we kind of live a certain way, we say, okay, if, if I do this, Jesus, um, then, uh, then this will happen in my life. And so sometimes uh, life's going hard and things aren't going the way you thought. And, and so maybe you think, well, I'm going to get religious now and I'm going to start praying more and then maybe my life will turn around. But do you see how even that, Jesus becomes the means and not the end? The ultimate thing, the thing that we're seeking, the thing that we want, the thing that we're looking for is is what we think uh, that Jesus will do if if we behave a certain way. So something else is our omega. 
Maybe it's that we want our life turned around. So what are the omega points in your life? What would your kids, if you have kids, what would they say your omega points are? Or your parents? Or your friends? Or your spouse? What would other people say is, is the thing that you're kind of striving for? The thing that you're fighting for? The thing that you're going towards? What's kind of the end goal? What's the thing that if you lost, you would lose the will to live? Is it a job that makes you feel like you have purpose? Is it a good family? Is it good grades? Popularity? A spouse? I'm not recommending this movie, so I, I hesitate mentioning it, but I'm going to because uh, it's a good illustration. Uh, but the movie Seven, it was the first R-rated movie I ever snuck into, and I'm not recommending that kids, that you guys do that. Um, but I remember sneaking into it. It came out like the, the mid-'90s, um, and it was this movie starring Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman where they're police officers, and they're trying to track down a serial killer who seems to be killing people based on the seven deadly sins, greed, Lust, sloth, you know, all, gluttony, all that. But, um, and so, you know, it's a movie where they're trying to find him. Uh, but there's one person um, that the killer doesn't kill, um, and it's the person who uh, he thinks is vain. And in fact, the person who he thinks is vain chooses instead to kill themselves. He finds this model, beautiful young woman, and he disfigures her. And then he leaves her some pills. Um, and so she has the choice continue living, not beautiful anymore, or end it. And she chooses to end it. Now, that's an extreme example. But I want you to think about this in light of, of the original hearers of the letter of Revelation. John was writing to people who had lost everything. They had lost their standing in the community Many had lost their friends and family because of what they believed or lost their friends and family to death. Many of them were facing death themselves, and yet they bravely faced it because Jesus was not a means to something else. He wasn't a means to a better life or, or to this or that. He himself was the end. Now, let's, I think most of us, um, and maybe all of us, um, came to Christianity as a means to an end. We didn't want to go to hell, or our lives were falling apart, and we think, well, maybe Christianity will help. And so we give it a try. But then what causes us to stick, why we don't leave, why we keep coming back, is because Jesus has moved from our helper to our everything. That's the only thing that will make us stick. When he becomes our omega. Some of you maybe are really close to leaving. And listen, I get that. I, I, have, I have tried uh, to leave so many times um, that just doesn't seem right considering the profession that I'm in. But um, I get it. But my encouragement to you is to stay. Stay. Because I get, I get trying to do a lot of good things. I get trying to say, all right, God, if I do this and this and this, you got to turn things around for me. you got to fix this. you gotta, you got to solve this problem. And so I'm going to do all this stuff for you. And if he isn't doing it, and you've been doing that for a long time, if things aren't turning out the way you thought, I get the desire to want to just bail. 
But my encouragement to you is to stay. Because if you stay, if you stay, you will hear Jesus say to you, I love you. You will hear him say that I died for you. And I died for you. Um, and, and, and I want you to come alongside me. I want you to serve me, not so that you can get something else, but so you can get me. The reason I died was so that you could get me. Like, I am it. I'm the last. I'm the omega. I'm what everything finds its yes in. Don't use me to get something else. Get me. Elizabeth Elliot, who lost her husband um, as he was uh, trying to communicate the gospel um, to some unreached people, um, she wrote a novel. And in this novel, uh, it's titled No Graven Image. It, it, she tells the story of a, a woman who went to South America into the jungle to translate the Bible. And everything that could go wrong goes wrong in this story. And, and at the very end, her life work is completely ruined and lost. All her work, it didn't, it didn't matter. It actually didn't even make a difference. It was just... It was just is gone. And on the last page of the novel, she says this, God, if he was merely my accomplice, had betrayed me. If, on the other hand, he was God, he had freed me. If God was a means to an end, he betrayed me, he had failed me. But if God himself was the end, he freed me. Are you free? What she's saying is, if, if I suddenly realize that God is my own happily ever after, that he is my last, that he is my omega, if I spend my whole life serving him and all I get in the end is him, what more could I ask for? That's enough. That's it. Paul writes in Ephesians, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. This failed missionary knows that if she really has been adopted into the family of God, into a family that will never shame her, that will never reject her, that will never push her out, that will just love her unconditionally, if she really has gotten that, if she really has been washed clean by the blood of Jesus so that even before creation, she was chosen in Christ to be holy and blameless, which means that when God looks at her, when he sees her, no matter how guilty she is, no matter what she's done, he delights in her because she's been washed clean. She is holy and blameless in his sight. If she really has that, if it really is true that one day she will reign with him in a kingdom of joy and peace and happiness forever and ever, what more could she want? 
Do you know that kind of freedom? You can live that way. You can live that way in 2016 by making Jesus not just your first, but also your last. Knowing that you serve Jesus not to get things from him, but just to get him. Because he's it. He's the point. He's the gift. Garth Brooks says some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. Are there prayers? That was really stupid. Are there prayers you feel uh, that God hasn't answered? Maybe you've been praying them a long time. And maybe even going into this next year, you're like, God, you better do this this year. I've been praying so long, and it's a good thing. It seems like something you would want for me. But maybe our unanswered prayers are God's way of freeing us. Freeing us from omega points that aren't him. Last thing. If Jesus is the beginning and the end of your story, your story really is all about grace. This is really one of my favorite passages. Um, it's really my favorite depiction of Jesus in all of Scripture. Because most of the other pictures of Jesus we get are in the Gospels, and, and that, we're seeing him in his humility. We're seeing him as, as a man. And In fact, Isaiah 53 talks about how there was nothing about Jesus' physical appearance that would attract us to him. But here in Revelation, what a picture of Jesus. And y'all... This is the picture of what Jesus really is, what he really looks like, who he's always been. We get a picture of how every single one of us will encounter him one day, whether we believe in him or not. This is what we're going to see. We're going to see this, this, this being that is, that is hard to describe, whose hair is, is white like snow, whose eyes feel like they're on fire, who when he speaks, his word is so piercing that it's like a sharp-edged sword, who, who's just, who in his hand, he's holding seven stars. Stars are huge, right? I mean, there's this colossal, huge picture of this all-powerful Jesus. Revelation, again, is showing us how things really are. He's giving us a picture of who Jesus really is. And as soon as John, the, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the disciple that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he laid his breast upon Jesus. Like this disciple sees Jesus as he really is, and he falls down as if he were dead. He was scared to death. And what I love most about this is what Jesus does. This all-powerful, scary, mighty, perfect, holy being reaches down his right hand and places it on his shoulder, on, on the scared shoulder of his disciple John, and he says, fear not. And the reason he can say that to John is because he himself is grace. Because apart from Jesus... John could not stand in the presence of Jesus. If Jesus were not grace, and he actually is, grace is a, a synonym for Jesus. In Titus 2.11, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. Jesus is the grace of God. Some of you have made New Year's resolutions to show up at church more this year. 
I hope you do. And some of you have made resolutions um, that this year you're really going to take your relationship with Jesus more seriously. I hope that you do. Maybe you've made the resolution that this year you're going to kick that sinful habit or that addiction or you're going to start acting better towards your family or your spouse or your kids or your friends. It could be a number of things that you're resolving to do. And they're all good things. But I want you to know that if, if Jesus is your beginning and your end, no matter how this year turns out, no matter how well you do at keeping your resolutions, you have nothing to fear because Jesus is grace. Your entire story, the entire story of the Bible is about Jesus, and Jesus is a synonym for grace, or grace is a synonym for Jesus. Brennan Manning, I've talked about him a lot because he's one of my heroes. I love Brennan Manning. I love reading his books. Um, Ragamuffin Gospel, I think, has sold like over two million copies. Uh, Abba's Child, which is my personal favorite. Um, uh, he's great. And, and if you are struggling with self-worth and struggling with knowing that you're loved by God, I encourage you to get his books and read them. They're so good. But Brennan died a few years ago, and he died um, from chronic alcohol abuse. Uh, and this was pretty shocking to the Christian world because he was a real famous Christian speaker. In fact, he would go around and, and sell out conferences. Thousands of people would come to hear him speak. Um, and only his family and his close friends knew that a lot of times after those conferences, he would go back to a hotel somewhere and disappear for a week. No one could find him. And it would be because he blacked out and he'd be binging. Uh, and this went on and on and on during most of his ministry. He was also a Catholic priest who got married. So, I mean, he had that going against him. Um, and he got divorced because his wife just couldn't take it. She couldn't take that he was a workaholic and an alcoholic. But Brennan Manning knew Jesus was his first and his last. And the reason I love reading his writings is not because he's this great example of what I want to be one day, but he is an example of what it means to trust fully in Jesus. And he had a memoir that came out a few years ago, right before his death, um, and it has his name on it, but he didn't write it. It says another guy's name, too, with John Blaze. And John Blaze wrote it because uh, Brennan was pretty incapacitated towards the end of his life. He could, I, mean, he, I mean, he just couldn't function, really. And he had gotten a divorce, and so he really died alone. And so um, he got real honest with John Blaze, and John Blaze wrote down his life story in this book. Um, but he did write with his own hand the very beginning of the book, and I'd like to end by reading you Brennan Manning's last words. He wrote this. This book is by the one who thought he'd be further along by now, but he's not. It is by the inmate who promised the parole board he'd be good, but he wasn't. It's by the dim-eyed who showed the path to others but kept losing his way. It's by the wet-brained who believed if a little wine is good for the stomach, then a lot is great. It is by the liar, tramp, and thief, otherwise known as the priest, speaker, and author. It is by the young at heart but old of bone who has led these days in a way he'd rather not go. But... This book is also for the gentle ones who've lived among wolves 
It is for those who have broken free of collar to rop in fields of love and marriage and divorce. It is for those who mourn, who have been mourning most of their lives, yet they hang on to shall be comforted. It is for those who have dreamed of entertaining angels, but found instead a few friends of great price. It is for the younger and elder prodigals who have come to their senses again and again and again and again. It is for those who strain at pious piffle because they've been swallowed by mercy itself. This book is for myself and those who have been around the block enough times that we dare whisper to each other the ragamuffin's rumor. All is grace. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that you tell us where it is we can find our purpose and our joy and our meaning in life. And it's in Jesus. It's in Jesus' willingness to come and live the life that we should have lived and died the death that we deserve so that we could get him. And Father, I pray that as we as a church dive deep into the story that you're telling through the church, that we would be so in love and enamored with Jesus that he would be our end and that everything else we do would be simply a means to get closer to you. And Father, I pray for my friends in this room. I pray uh, for whatever it is that, that they are looking forward to or that they're scared about or they're struggling with as they go into 2016. I pray, Jesus, that you would show them that you are the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, and that you would show them that really in you there's grace. Jesus, we pray all these things in your name. Amen.